Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to all of you out there in our Boston radio listening audience. That particular part of the country, as I've mentioned before, is well known for a lot of medical and biological research, as well as health care. In fact, I have a son who works in the supply, sales, and maintenance of equipment for the biological research industry, and he's located near Boston for that very reason. And today's show relates very much to research into biology, research into life itself, and how does it change and how can it change. I am a Christian apologist and a young earth creationist, as it is referred to in our culture, that is a biblical creationist. I accept the Genesis account of creation as factual, as historical. I did not used to be that. I used to be an atheist evolutionist, as mentioned in my intro. And so I've had a great interest in this question of how does life change? We certainly do see it change. Creationists are often lampooned as believing that the species are fixed. There's absolutely no change ever. That is not what well-educated creationists believe these days. In fact, in a nutshell, the modern creationist view of life is that it was created, the kinds were created intact, individually by God in a very short period of time. They have no relationship to each other in terms of ancestry. They simply have a common designer, a common creator, and hence a great deal of commonality is both expected and observed. Furthermore, we've had a few thousand years of living in a post-fall world, and in the biblical model in that world, things just don't work the way they're supposed to anymore. And so we expect, and we certainly see, a growing set of degradation within the human genome, for example. More and more genetic diseases are being identified and seem to be more and more prevalent. That, in fact, matches perfectly with a biblical creationist view of biology. Now, the primary opposing theory, the one that is promoted by mainstream science, is, of course, evolution, and the one that is primarily promoted is the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, which claims that all life originated essentially from a single source. Some say multiple sources, but they're very vague about that. But as life evolved and it changed, different types of creatures arose from a common ancestor, and all of the changes supposedly were driven by mutations to the DNA, changes to letters, if you will, within the DNA code. And then natural selection acts upon those changes. Good changes become fixed within the population of the creature, and that's how evolution occurs, or so the story goes. Now, the real question is not whether mutations occur at all or not. They certainly do. We can observe them. The question is not whether natural selection can choose from among the variants produced by these mutations. The real question is, does this mechanism provide sufficient change? That is, the type of change needed to make one creature change into another type of creature. That is, substantial changes, not trivial changes. Changes in the size of a finch beak don't explain changes from no wings to wings, for example. Biochemist Michael Behe is not a creationist. He is, in fact, an evolutionist of sorts, at least, but he certainly recognizes limitations to evolution. 
And of course, he authored two very important books on this subject, Darwin's Black Box, back in the mid-90s, which is one of the landmark books in the intelligent design movement. In that book, he coined the term irreducible complexity and pointed to structures we see within living cells and within living creatures that defy the notion of having arisen by slow, gradual changes, mutations, that were acted upon by natural selection. Instead, these particular features have multiple interacting parts, all of which are necessary for it to function at all. And he's written a more recent book, The Edge of Evolution, The Search for the Limits of Darwinism. Recent research has verified one of the predictions Behe made, and he discusses this in an interview with Casey Luskin over at ID the Future, which is a very good blog from the intelligent design perspective. Now, these folks are not creationists. They are intelligent design theorists, so don't conflate those two at all, please. But their discussion and the research being done is very pertinent, and they've allowed us to share that on this broadcast. So please enjoy this ID the Future episode. Hello, and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, broadcasting with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle, Washington. We have on the show today one of our favorite special guests, Dr. Michael Behe, a professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and also a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Dr. Behe, of course, received his PhD in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania, and much of his research involves the delineation of intelligent design and natural selection in protein structures. So, Dr. Behe, thank you for coming on the show with us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Yes, it's a lot of fun to have you on the show. And the occasion this time is an article you recently wrote on Evolution News and Views about a paper that Joe Thornton's lab recently published in the journal Nature, claiming that they had shown the evolution of a new enzyme. And, of course, you took issue with what Dr. Thornton and his lab mates had written, and I thought it would be helpful to our listeners to have you explain exactly what their research did and why it did not show the creative power of Darwinian evolution. In fact, you write in your article that it shows how Darwinian evolution is reliant upon mere chance, and it really doesn't show the creative power. First of all, can you tell us what did their research do and what was the experimental evidence that they came up with in this paper? Well, off the bat, to kind of make it a little more specific, the proteins that they worked on weren't actually enzymes. There are other kinds of proteins. Enzymes are ones which catalyze chemical reactions, but other proteins do other things. And these are two things called receptors, which just bind some chemicals and use that as a signal. And the other thing is that actually... Joseph Thornton, he's apparently now at the University of Chicago, he used to be at the University of Oregon, they published their paper not to claim that they'd shown that Darwinian evolution had some great power, but rather to emphasize what they call historical contingency in the development of the protein. That was, in fact, their big point that they themselves made, that chance, pretty much, dumb luck, was more involved in this story than was Darwinian evolution, where something has some beneficial property and is selected. This is what I get when I don't read the paper before I interview you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it's always good to read the paper. <laughs> yes, but I do welcome the news that, in fact, the Darwinian evolutionists were not claiming that Darwinian evolution has power, that they were claiming that it was just sheer dumb luck. That's good to learn, actually, but I'll, yeah. I'll let you continue on here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so e- even the other side essentially doesn't claim that this shows any particular power of selection. To start at the beginning, there are proteins which bind hormones. That means they stick to them specifically in our bodies. And there are different kinds of hormones and there are a couple different kinds of proteins that bind to them. And these are used to send signals to cells and tissues to do various things, to keep different salts in balance in our body and regulate the immune system and all, all sorts of different things. Well, Joe Thornton's lab has been interested in the evolution of these. And it turns out that a couple of the proteins that bind different hormones are very similar to each other, are pretty similar in the amino acid sequence. So most people thought that they would descend from a common ancestor protein where in the misty past there was a protein that bound one hormone and then the gene coding for it duplicated and one of the copies developed the ability to bind a different hormone. And that makes sense. It it seemed pretty straightforward to me because the other class of hormones is very similar to the first class of steroid hormones. So you've got similar proteins binding similar hormones. That seemed pretty straightforward. Well, it turns out it wasn't as straightforward as we thought because in this latest paper, which is one of a series from his lab, which are very, very interesting, In this latest paper, he and his associates asked the question, what would it take to make the ancestor of one of these kind of proteins in our bodies develop the ability to be like the modern protein? And before his work, I would have said, even I, you know, who doesn't think Darwinian evolution can explain all that much, I would have bet that it could explain that, starting with a similar protein and binding a similar small molecule hormone. But it turns out that if you put in the changes that seem to be required for the modern protein, that's not enough. And that the ancestor would not develop the abilities in the modern protein with just those changes. It turns out that a couple other changes are necessary, which Thornton's group showed don't help at all, don't change the properties of the old protein. They just kind of accumulate, like you might change the letter C in the word cat to a K. That doesn't do much. It could be what you'd call a neutral change. And they showed that several of these neutral changes were needed before you got this new property. Well, that was surprising. But then they asked the question, well, how many possible changes could take the place of these neutral ones. When the historical situation, or in reality, there are two particular changes that were required. And he asked the question, well, maybe any of a large number of changes could have done the same job. And so it wasn't too much of a stretch to think that these things just happened by chance and that this lucky circumstance then could go on to develop the modern protein. So he and his group, using modern molecular biology laboratory techniques changed a lot of the amino acids in many copies of the ancestor protein to see which ones could act like the ones that were the neutral mutations that allowed the modern protein to come about. And it turns out that none of the thousands and thousands of different possible mutations they tested could act like the real mutations did. 
only the ones that actually occur in the modern protein could have allowed that. And that means that the likelihood of starting with the ancestor and getting to the modern protein just by chance is extremely improbable. And they say exactly that in their paper. They say that historical contingency played an enormous role in developing the modern protein. And again, historical contingency is another phrase for dumb luck. And the importance of this paper, from my point of view, is that it shows that even what appear to be minor changes in similar proteins, that even somebody like me, who questions Darwinian evolution, but nonetheless says it can do some things, I would have been happy to grant, for the sake of argument, that that, that could have happened any number of times. But the first time it's tested, and nobody else has done the work to test that question before because it's a lot of work. But the first one that was tested has been shown that even that small change in the function of the protein is very problematic if there is no intelligent agent directing things or there is nothing pushing it where it's supposed to go. And so that all of a sudden now makes even more problematic the typical claim of Darwin's intellectual descendants here that proteins that look the same or have similar amino acid sequences must have developed by random processes, natural selection, acting on random mutation from some common ancestor gene. It looks much more like even details of life are beyond Darwinian evolution. And that, of course, points more strongly to intelligent design. Well, this is really interesting, Dr. Behe, because you thought that this would have been the kind of change that would have been what you have called the edge of evolution, the kinds of changes that a Darwinian selection process can, in fact, accomplish. But yet, essentially, this change turned out to be what might be called a multi-mutation feature, where multiple mutations are necessary before you get the sort of new function or new advantage that you're looking for. And of course, as you have shown in some of your research, when you have to have these multi-mutation features, you might have to wait a long time before you get the requisite mutations to produce those features. Is that essentially right? Yeah, that's exactly right. When you need to change one thing or one amino acid or one nucleotide in DNA, when you need to change one thing and that gives you a new and beneficial property, then Darwin's theory is the way to go. It's great. It explains things just fine. But if you have to change two things, where the first thing is either neutral or not helpful or maybe even detrimental, and then you have to, on top of that, change a second one, then Darwin's theory rapidly starts to lose steam. And any more than that is getting to be beyond what you'd expect, even in long periods of time and with lots of different organisms, more than you'd expect Darwin's mechanism to accomplish. And the interesting thing, again, here is that this is occurring in systems like these proteins that Thornton's lab worked on that nobody, even skeptics of Darwin's theory, nobody thought were problematic. And nobody has tested anything that's more difficult than this. This is the first one it was expected to go pretty easily, and it has turned out to be problematic. So all of a sudden, that makes it look like everything will turn out to be problematic, or that many of the things that we took for granted will turn out to be, and that things that differ from each other more than these two proteins did will turn out to be even more problematic, so that the edge of evolution, or look at the other way, 
what Darwinism can explain at the molecular level in life has suddenly shrunk. And what was obvious that it explained last week is now not so obvious at all. And it'll be interesting to see how further research goes along these lines. Well, Dr. Behe, you have talked about this problem of evolving multi-mutation features in some of your previous work. For example, you talk about this in The Edge of Evolution, and you also published a paper in the journal Protein Science a number of years back that actually calculated the likelihood of evolving a feature that required multiple mutations before giving you this advantage or the change that you're looking for. And you actually put some numbers on the problem. You and your co-author, David Snow, crunched some numbers and found that it would take huge population sizes, upwards of a billion individuals and even many billions of years sometimes to evolve these features that require many mutations before giving you an advantage. Did Thornton's paper go that extra step and sort of do the population genetics calculation and ask, is it actually feasible to accomplish these kinds of evolutionary changes where you need more than one mutation before getting an advantage? Did they actually look into whether Darwinian evolution could accomplish this kind of change? Obviously, you said they ascribed it to historical contingency, and that's fine. I mean, I guess no duh, but the question is, did they ask whether there were sufficient probabilistic resources for historical contingency to do its job here? Yeah, that's a great question, and the short answer is no. They did not ask whether it was then feasible that this should have happened even by chance. And they're not alone there. I've never seen a Darwinist calculate the likelihood of something happening that has happened because the numbers always go so badly against them. It's strange, too, because people always tout Darwin's theory as something that eliminates the big probabilities against good things happening, and yet they never themselves calculate such probabilities. It's interesting. David Snoke and I did do this paper where we did calculate such probabilities, and we got into a lot of trouble because of it, too. But I should say that, yes, once you get beyond one step that is not selected, then you're going into territory that's at least very difficult for Darwinian evolution. And I should say that although Thornton and his lab did not do the calculations themselves, nonetheless, they know that these things are going to be very difficult to come up with by chance because they earlier published a paper that said that about five mutations in a different circumstance would have to be changed in order for a modern protein to get back to its ancestral form. And they essentially said this is impossible because you'd need five changes. Well, why would it be five changes? Why would that be impossible? But they knew intuitively that the probability of that is nil. And so this is all coming out very close to where David Stoke and I thought. That's very significant, Dr. Behe, that they acknowledge that a trait that requires five mutations before getting you where you want to go, <laughs> that that is beyond the edge of evolution. That's showing that in principle, the kinds of criticisms that you and many other folks in the ID movement are directly correct, basically, that there is really a limit here. And it's not surprising that they would acknowledge this. When you think about the way that medical researchers will fight problems like antibiotic resistance, they do it by making a cocktail of drugs where there are so many ways to kill a bug that there's no way that the bug can evolve all the mutations necessary 
in one foul swoop to sort of evade all the different antibiotic drugs in the cocktail. And so fighting antibiotic resistance, we do that based upon the intuitive notion that there is a limit to what evolution can do. My question then is, when are they going to address some of the research of Douglas Axe and Ann Gager, who are actually doing similar research, trying to convert one enzyme to a very closely related enzyme and finding that that would take upwards of seven mutations? Are they going to acknowledge that the research of Axe and Gager actually has officially found something that's beyond the edge of evolution. I don't know. When will we see those acknowledgments? <laughs> well, pardon my cynicism, but, <laughs> but I, I think you'll be waiting a long time. That's what's so nice about Thornton's work is that he's a card-carrying Darwinist, as far as I know, great scientist, published his paper in Nature and Science, and one of the reasons it got into Nature and Science is that it was surprising. It was not what people expected. And the phrase historical contingency is, I think, one of the selling points. So here's something that we didn't expect. And it kind of gives reverberations of Stephen Jay Gould's question about if life evolved a second time, whether it would go in the same direction. So people are kind of interested in that. And since Thornton is not known as a skeptic of Darwin's theory, then no red flags went up. I'm afraid that when looked at by somebody who's willing to be critical or skeptical of Darwin's theory, this is exactly what Doug Axe and Ann Yeager and other folks have shown, that once you have to skip a step, you run into big trouble. And so there's good reason to think that, well, Darwin's mechanism can do some things, some small and medically important things. There's a limit beyond which it cannot be expected to work. Yeah, and of course, Dr. B, historical contingency is sort of like a catch-all term that you use to just say, somehow it happened, we don't have to worry about the details. It's sort of this blind allusion to the unending amounts of time and population sizes and chance that if you just sort of vaguely refer to those vast probabilistic resources, then somehow they're going to get the job done. But of course, what ID proponents are saying is, well, let's not just assume that there's a vast sea of probabilistic resources out there in terms of time and population sizes and the number of mutations that can occur to accomplish these changes. Let's not just assume it can happen. Let's actually put numbers on the problem and let's test it. And that's the next step that your 2004 paper with David Snoke was a major breakthrough, I think, in terms of our research community starting to really put numbers on these questions. And then other folks have also tried to tackle these questions from the ID research camp. And we're finding that really the, the resources are limited. You can't just assume that Darwinian selection can do anything. And even perhaps our trait that requires only two or certainly more than two mutations is beyond the edge of evolution. So I guess my last question for you, Dr. Behe, is this. What will take longer, trying to evolve a multi-mutation feature or getting a Darwinian evolutionist to acknowledge that Darwinian evolution cannot produce a multi-mutation feature? Where is the longer waiting time going to be? Well, that is a tough one. I don't know. <laughs> I'll bet on evolving the multi-feature. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough, and, and only time will tell. No pun intended there, or maybe the pun is intended. Well, Dr. Behe, thank you so much for coming on ID the Future today, explaining to us about the latest research of Dr. Joe Thornton. Really, he's doing, I think, groundbreaking research, and perhaps one day we'll see the true implications of what his research is showing. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep, and it's always glad to be with you. Well, I'm Casey Lustin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. 
ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com. As our knowledge of the details of life continues to develop through modern research, it becomes increasingly clear that there is no naturalistic, materialistic, purely evolutionary explanation that matches the reality of what we see around us. Rather, there are clearly limits to what Darwinism can explain, and there is a necessity for an intelligent source, an intelligent designer. The intelligent design movement continues to push forward the science of our understanding of life, and that is a very useful thing if you have any interest at all in the truth about reality. And as their research and the research of creationist biologists and biochemists continues to show, naturalism is completely insufficient to explain what we observe. Now, as a biblical creationist, this doesn't surprise me at all, because the Bible has long said there is evidence for the Creator in the creation around us. To ignore such evidence and pretend there's no necessity for a Creator is to be deliberately blind to what we see. SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com